In the Bible, the book of Romans, chapter 3, with me this morning, please. Turn there in God's Word, the Scripture. And uh, I haven't been here, well, it seems like a long time since I've preached. Uh, Two weeks ago, we had Jimmy D. Young all day. Last week, I was in Kansas City. Our former staff member there, Fred Allen, served here at this church for like eight or nine years. And Fred went out there, ultimately planted a church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, a community, bedroom community of Kansas City. And he was having his 25th anniversary and asked me if I'd come out and speak. And of course, I wanted to do so if I could. And I spent the weekend in Kansas City. And so um, I'm looking forward to getting back today to the book of Romans. It's been a while, and I don't want you to forget where we've been. Now, if you will look in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, and would you stand one more time here today, all right? We've had you up and down a lot, but we stand to honor the Word of God. Romans chapter number 3, and the screen says verse 31, but I'm actually going to back up a couple of verses to verse 19. Now, we know that what things soever the law meaning all of the Old Testament, the prophets, the Psalms, the entire Old Testament, we know that what things soever the law, the Old Testament saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, that every argument may be refuted, and all the world, note that, all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And then he tells us the purpose of the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The law was never intended to save. The purpose of the law is to show us the need of salvation to bring us to Christ. By it, we know that we're sinners, that we have been unable to keep its commands. Now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law, note that phrase, the righteousness of God without law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all of them that believe, for there is no difference among people upon the earth without Christ is what the inference. And then verse 23, one you know by heart, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Heavenly Father, will you fill me now with your Holy Spirit as I bring forth your word. Guide my words. Lord, use this message. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. In verse number 21, verse number 21, you will notice the words, but now. And you may want to mark those in your Bible because they're very significant. They indicate that we're now entering a new section of the book of Romans. A completely different subject is going to be uh, what we'll be dealing with now. In the opening session, or the opening section, rather, 
of the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 1 and going through chapter 3 down to about verse 19 or 20, we've spent 24 weeks looking at that passage. I've analyzed it, and I have dissected it for you because I didn't want to hurry through that at all. I wanted you to mentally, intellectually grasp the truth of the content of that passage. In that opening section, as I've said to you a number of times, the Apostle Paul acts as God's prosecutor, and he presents evidence in chapter 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Romans that every single human being is lost before God, that they have broken God's laws, that they are therefore guilty under the law of God, that they are in fact under God's condemnation. People don't like to hear that today. I understand, but that's exactly what he says. He uses the word condemnation. All have sinned. They have come short of God's standard of righteousness. They've broken his laws. They're under condemnation, and therefore they are guilty. And if you look at the last phrase of verse 19 there, it actually says, all the world will become guilty before God. There's not one single innocent human being, according to that passage then, on the planet. And so he actually leaves us helpless. There's not a thing we can do to save ourselves. He leaves us hopeless. There's no hope outside of God's plan of salvation. Now, up until now, the book of Romans has been pretty negative, to be honest, by the standards of people today. I've, over and over and over, he tells us that we're sinners. Over and over and over, he says we're guilty before God. And I really think that's the missing note in Christianity today. We have turned Christianity into a therapeutic, feel-good type of religion. And that's not what the Bible says here. If you will simply read Romans 1, 2, and 3, you come to the conclusion that this world's a pretty dark place, that sin is epidemic, that sin controls everything in our culture, ultimately, and that there is no hope outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Paul wants to bring us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great the greatest Bible expositor, I think, of contemporary modern times. He actually died 40 years ago now, but in modern history. He was a medical doctor in London, England, and he, he wrote most of his life on the book of Romans over and over and over in depth. A great intellectual, a great theologian, and a godly man. And here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this passage. It is absolutely useless to talk about coming to Christ if we're still holding on to some idea that we can make ourselves acceptable to God by anything that we do, end of quote. Notice what he said. It's absolutely useless to talk to people about coming to Christ until they first realize there is no hope that we are guilty and condemned before God, and there is no hope outside of the intervention of Almighty God. And so having established that now, 
We come down to verse number 22 and mark two words here, but now, because that means we're entering, we're going through a door. We're entering an entire new section of the book of Romans. And this section is going to turn from darkness and negativism. It's going to turn to the most glorious, positive, wonderful news that anybody could ever hear that in our hopelessness and helplessness, Almighty God has made provision for every single human on this planet. And so there is help and there is hope. And so for weeks now, I've been trying to get you to see, though, the absolute necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there's no way other than that way that God could provide. And so that's why I've been preaching through the book of Romans. And I'm, I've tried to be deliberate in doing it. I almost have analyzed every word with you, 24 previous messages before today, because you have got to know this to be really, really grounded in the Christian faith. There is so much ignorance today of the Bible. We are finding a majority of professing Christians in America today in a recent poll could not name the four gospels. They couldn't name Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and yet they profess to be Christians. So there is a tragic ignorance today about the Word of God, about the Christian faith. And so I've dug down deeply in these passages because I want my flock to be an intelligent group of Christian people, well-learned, biblically literate people. And I've preached like that because now we come to one of the absolute greatest doctrinal passages in all the Bible. Scholar after scholar, theologian after theologian will tell you in their writings that from Romans chapter 3 and 21 right on through chapter 8, we're dealing with the greatest concepts of the Christian faith all condensed into about four chapters here that you could ever possibly find. You could spend your life studying the rest of the Bible, but everything that relates to your relationship with God will be found here in these chapters. And so I urge you to be present every time that you possibly can. David Wells, who I greatly respect, an author, a professor at a seminary up in Massachusetts, David Wells wrote these words. He says, evangelical Christianity in its early days was characterized by doctrinal seriousness. Stop. Think with me about those two words. Doctrinal seriousness. Now, I'm told today by all the experts on getting people to come to church and church growth and so on, don't get too doctrinal. Don't preach too deeply. People don't want to hear it. And I know they don't want to hear it. I've observed in my ministry in my lifetime that people in general right now in America are not listening to God, less so than maybe any time since the Great Awakening. People are not interested in God. Why is our church not packed out and running over? I can tell you why. Because people don't care what God said. They're not real interested. They're far more interested in a thousand other things than they are in what God said. And yet, I know the commission of the preacher is to stand here and to proclaim the Word of God, no matter whether people want to hear it or not. That's my role. 
and to proclaim it lovingly and powerfully and truthfully and with the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon me, I hope, and I pray that you pray that for me. And that's my role. And you should be doctrinally serious. Doctrine represents the truth of the Bible. And you must know some things before you can believe adequately and rightly. This idea that you don't need to know much to be able to understand the Christian faith, that, that's a wrong-headed idea. You do need to know. God works first through the mind before he ever touches the emotions. You must have understanding. You must have light. And these are not simple things always. Some of these are pr- fairly complex, and you must try to understand them. And so we must be doctrinally serious. And so we come today to one of the greatest words in all of the Bible, and the word is righteousness. And the subject for the rest of my time is the righteousness of God. The first point I want to make to you is that God is righteous. God is righteous. I know you know that, but I need to tell you something about it. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 17. You'll see that phrase for the first time. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. This is the verse that changed the history of Western civilization. This is the passage Martin Luther was reading and studying when he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the Protestant Reformation was born in Europe. And then if I go to chapter number 3 and verse number 21, now the righteousness of God. And so I see the phrase again. And then I go to chapter uh, 3 and verse 22. Even the righteousness of God. And for the third time in three chapters, the righteousness of God. What is righteousness? Very simply, and you can remember this, righteousness is being right. Right is the state of being right. Or another word way of saying it is righteousness is moral perfection. If someone is righteous, they are, mor- they are morally perfect. That's absolute righteousness. To the degree that we are morally perfect, we are said to be righteous. Righteousness then here describes God's character. What is God like? Well, we know there's a lot of things about God. The Bible says God is a God of love. God is a God of grace. God is a God of holiness. But the Bible says scores and scores of times, God is righteous. Mark that down. God is righteous. God is always right. There's not a hint of wrongdoing in God. God is flawless and perfect. I can't even use words that describe how right God always is. He's never wrong. He is righteous. It's his nature to be righteous. When I say it's his nature, it's the nature of a light to shine. It's the nature of the sun to bring warmth. It's it's the nature of the night to be dark and of the day to be light. It's the nature of fire to be hot. It's the nature of ice to be cold. And it's the nature of God to be right, to be righteous. Everything about God is virtuous. It's flawless. It's holy. It's wholly good. 
In him is no darkness. In him is no wrongdoing. Everything in heaven is righteous. Everything in heaven is perfect. Even the angels are called the holy angels. God is righteous. Everything around God is righteous. Secondly, God demands righteousness as well. If we were to go to heaven, if mankind were to all be taken to heaven as we are, then heaven would become like earth as it now is. Some people have the idea that everybody's ultimately going to end up in heaven. Universalism is what that's called. Everybody will ultimately be saved. If everybody were to go to heaven, then heaven would become hell virtually. It would become as big a mess as earth is even today. Jesus said to the people listening to him teaching that day when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. What did he mean? The scribes and the Pharisees were people who gave every single waking moment of their life to keeping the law of God. They had added 613 additional laws to the laws that are found in the Bible to help them live this supposed holy life. And yet God said, you can keep all those outward laws, but inside your body is like a grave full of rotting putrefaction. You can look perfect on the outside, and yet inside you can be absolutely corrupt. And unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of these people who spend their life trying to be righteous, then you will never even see the kingdom of God. And in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30, a verse that you and I know by heart, seek ye first, first priority, the kingdom of God, And what's the next phrase? And his righteousness. And if you do that first, all these things will be added unto you. In other words, Jesus said that seeking God's righteousness, by the way, if you'll read that verse, seek ye first the righteousness, or seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not your self-made righteousness, his righteousness. If you seek that first, and that is your absolute priority in your life, then Jesus said, that's the first thing for you. And it's my fear today that in Christianity, we have become pretty unbalanced today, even in solid biblical churches. We preach an awful lot about people having their sins forgiven. And we should. That the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Amen and amen. But we don't hear an equivalent amount of emphasis upon, okay, now that your sins are forgiven, the priority of your life is to seek God's righteousness. You see? The emphasis is on forgiveness of sin. That's basically negative. That's that's the scars and the filth that we've accumulated in life spiritually. But Why is it that we don't put as great an emphasis on seeking the righteousness of God when Jesus himself said that's first? Forgiveness simply 
takes away that which hurts us. The righteousness of God fills us with joy and with, makes us complete people in God, makes us what he wants us to be. God is righteous, and he wants us to be righteous. And he says righteousness, seeking his righteousness is the priority for us. Number two, look in verse number 21, and I call your attention to just one little simple phrase there. Now, in verse 21, now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested or demonstrated or seen. What is he saying there? He's saying God's righteousness comes to us without trying to keep the law that the Pharisees and the scribes were attempting to do. I've just described that. That little phrase right there, righteousness without the law, listen to me carefully, that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world and even separates true biblical Christianity from some false forms of Christianity. Righteousness without law. You see, in every religion in the world, except where salvation is by grace through faith, man seeks to become acceptable to God by his own efforts. He seeks to do something that would please God and earn righteousness to offset his his sinfulness. And no matter what it is, trying to obey God's laws, trying to live a life of good deeds, trying to live a life that is a very moral, scrupulous life, going to church, observing ceremonies and rites, giving money to the poor, all of which are wonderful and good things in their proper place. But if we're trying to earn God's favor through those things, the Bible says we're not even saved by grace unmerited, unearned favor of God. Are you saved through faith and not, not of your works by not trying to seek your own righteousness? Christianity teaches us that the best we can ever do is will not make us acceptable to Almighty God. In fact, there's a great danger when people try to live a moral life without the cross. I want you to turn with me in your Bible just a few pages to the right in this wonderful book of Romans and chapter number 10. And I want you to see a marvelous and an important, important principle because it's human nature for us to be legalistic. And when I say legalistic, by that I mean it's human nature for us to try to, to, to manufacture our own righteousness by trying to live a moral life, a good life, a religious life, or whatever you may want to call it. Now, today in Romans chapter number 10, and in verse number 3, let me read to you. For they, speaking of particularly the Jewish people, but also of, of, of humanity in general, they being ignorant of God's righteousness. That's why I'm preaching on this today. I don't want Baptist Temple people to be ignorant of what God's righteousness is. So these people are ignorant of God's righteousness. They're going about to establish their own righteousness, meaning I'm trying to earn God's favor and save myself through what I can do. 
going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Here's the danger. In seeking to become righteous without receiving it God's way, we actually take our focus off of what we ought to be and don't submit ourselves to the righteousness of God. And then look at verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And I say to you, my friend, if you today are trying this much to live a moral life thinking you're going to please God and you're going to get to heaven that way, you are going to be sadly mistaken when you stand before God. Christ is the end of the law. Do I hear an amen to that? Christ is the end of the law. Christ said, I nail the law to the cross, and it's over. Don't try to keep it anymore to be saved. That's called legalism. That's the proper biblical view of legalism. Go down to verse 22. Let me show you one more thing here. Romans chapter 3. Go back with me. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith. So we find out God is righteous. God demands us to be righteous. God gives us righteousness apart from the law, that we're not under the law for salvation. And then in verse 22, he says, righteousness is obtained by faith. How do we get this righteousness? How do we obtain it? Turn one page with me in your Bible to chapter 4. And in chapter 4 and verse number 3, what does the Scripture say to that question? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham didn't try to keep the Ten Commandments. They hadn't been written yet. Abraham didn't clean up his act. Abraham simply believed God from the bottom, the depths of his heart. One day, one evening, he's standing out by his tent, I would suppose. And as Abraham stands there, God speaks in his ear, and he says, I want you to get up and get out of this country and get in, and I want you to follow me and go to the place that I'm going to show you. And this place is in a foreign country. Abraham was a wealthy man. He had herds and cattle and, and, and gold and silver. He's a very well-off man. And God said, leave it all behind. Leave your father. Leave your mother. Leave your country and go to this foreign country, and when you get there, I'll show you what to do. And Abraham had such great faith in God's word that he did exactly what God had said for him to do. And the Bible says, and God counted it for what? Say it, righteousness. God honored Abraham's faith and counted it for righteousness. I've given you a definition for faith through the years, and boy, it's so good when it comes to this. I've defined faith to you like this. Faith is hearing God's word, which we read it in the scripture, believing God's word, that's intellectual, acting on God's word. Ah, that means that's evidence I really did believe it, isn't it? And then leaving the rest up to him. Faith is hearing God's word, believing God's word, acting on God's word, and leaving everything else up to him. 
That's exactly what Abraham did. As he stood there that night, Genesis chapter 12, God said, if you'll do that, I'll honor you and make a great nation out of you. Your descendants will be greater than the grains of sand by the sea and the stars in the sky. And Abraham heard what God said verbally to him. He didn't have a Bible. He believed what God said so much he packed up. He acted on what God said, and he left the rest in God's hands, and you know the rest of the story. Now, there's one great, great verse that brings light to this, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Will you turn with me there? We're using our Bibles quite a bit, but I want you to see that what I'm telling you is straight from the Word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's the last verse in that chapter, verse 21 For he hath made him, he being the first he is God. God hath made him, that's Jesus. God hath made Jesus to be sin for us. Who knew no sin because he never sinned one time. Jesus was absolutely sinless. God made Jesus to to become sin for us, to bear all our sins who was perfect and knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Oh, what a wonderful verse. God said, I sent Jesus to the cross, and he took all your sins upon himself, that you could have his righteousness that he earned on the cross, in the atonement, through the shedding of his blood, He earned the right for you to have forgiveness of your sins and to be made righteous in Christ. What a powerful, powerful passage we have here. Notice that phrase at the end of it, in him. That that implies a relationship, a relationship that I'm not just intellectually believing in Jesus, but that I actually have this relationship with him. Righteousness is obtained by faith. Now, think with me. One, God is righteous. Number two, God demands righteousness. Number three, righteousness is available for us apart from trying to keep the law. And how is it obtained? Righteousness is by faith in verse 22. And in verse 22, notice that last phrase, Unto all and upon all. Unto all and upon all. And righteousness is provided by God himself. Let me say it again. Righteousness is provided by God to us. If a visitor came from far off space today and asked you, what is Christianity? Based upon the Bible, what would be the correct answer? Now, not your opinion, but what could you say? Well, I would, I would try to sum up the story of the Bible in a few words as I spoke to that visitor who had no idea what Christianity was about. And here's what I would say. I'd say Christianity is the story of how the creator of the universe created us, how man, after he was created, rebelled against God and fell into sin, How that God made a way to redeem him by sending his own son, by sending God himself to the earth in the form of Christ. 
to shed his blood and to die on the cross. And I would tell that visitor that God not only forgives us of our sins, but he clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He puts that righteousness upon us and that he thus prepares us to go to a perfect heaven without messing it up. That's the story, in essence, of the Christian faith. And throughout the Bible, there's one consistent picture that the Scripture uses about righteousness. It's an image, if you will. It's the idea of a garment or a coat or clothing. And throughout the Scripture, the picture is very consistent, that when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ, that he puts upon us this garment, and the garment is called salvation. And throughout the Scriptures, that analogy over and over, now I want you to remember this as long as you live. When anybody says the word righteousness, I want you to think of of a coat, And God is standing by, and he slips that coat of righteousness over that repentant sinner, and he clothes them in his righteousness. Salvation is so much more than just getting your sins forgiven. It is becoming the very righteous character of God himself as he works in our lives through the process, another big word, we call it sanctification. And so the idea of the Christian life is just not to get saved so I can miss hell. Oh, we cheapen it when we do that. The idea of salvation is that I get saved from my sins so God can take me to heaven, but he clothes me in his righteousness, and I live my life here on the earth walking among my fellow man as a righteous person in whom people can see the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that as I progress in my Christian life, that image grows more clear and more clear as I go through my life. My righteousness, do you know what the Bible says about my righteousness, my good deeds? In Isaiah chapter 64, all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I don't want to be crude. If you read that in the original in context, That refers to old menstrual rags. That's about, that's pretty bad. And that's the analogy. Everything, my righteousness, my good deeds, the works of my hand, the things I'm proud of spiritually, God said, they're filthy rags. I don't want them. They have no value to me. But then in Isaiah chapter 61, and uh, what verse is it? Verse 10 He says, I want to give you the garments of salvation. I want to put on this coat of salvation. And I want to give you a robe of righteousness and clothe you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with one passage and then I'll be through. It's in Luke 15. Luke 15. And it's the most familiar passage to you. It's the most famous story maybe somebody said in in all of English literature. We call it the story of the prodigal son. You know the story, the boy rebelled against his father, just went crazy, went down, ended up in a far country, spent all of his inheritance, living in a hog pen, losing, has lost everything. He's down 
He is as broken, beaten, and defeated as a human being can be. And in Luke chapter 15, read with me at beginning in verse 20. And he arose, and he came to his father, the prodigal son. And when he was a long ways off, his father saw him, and he had compassion. There's The father is like God. That prodigal son is you and me. And the father, God, had compassion when he saw the terrible need of this young man, and he ran, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. Every kind of, lavished him in affection. And the son said, note, Father, I have sinned. That's confession. That's repentance. I acknowledge my sin. I've done wrong. I have messed up, Father. I have sinned. And so we see here repentance and confession And he said, Father, not only have I sinned, but he said, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. We see humility. Because when we come to God, we don't come proud with a proud face. When we come to God, we come humbly, acknowledging we don't deserve even the presence of God or his attention. And so he did this. I'm not worthy to be called your son, humility and repentance. And what did God say, the father? Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. There's the garment. Put the robe of righteousness on my son. He has sinned. He's transgressed. He's done horrible things. I forgive him, but I'm not only forgiving. That's the negative side of the ledger. I put on him a beautiful robe of the righteousness that only I possess. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.